ESPN Daily is presented by YouTube TV. Try it free today at youtube.com slash NBA 23. New users only. Terms apply. Cancel anytime. Before we get started today, a quick content note. This episode contains discussion of depression, suicidal thoughts, and suicidal actions. Consider this a word of caution if that's a sensitive topic for you or anyone listening with you. Sam Borden, you were recently in Paris, where you lived for a long time. Uh, What did you see on this most recent visit? Yeah, Jeremy, it was interesting. You know, I was at the Accor Arena, which is sort of like the big arena in Paris. And on this particular night, there was a French League basketball game. And Victor Wembenyama was playing. The place was sold out. Everybody wanted to see Wembenyama. It was sort of like his farewell game to Paris, and they played it in this big arena. Mm. And obviously, the vast majority of people were there to see him, but I was there to see someone else. And that someone else was Frederick Weiss. Frederick Weiss, on this night, was working as a broadcaster for BN Sports, the French television station. And it was impossible to miss Weiss because... He was one of the only people on the court who was just about as tall as Wembenyama. Two decades before Wembenyama became this global sensation, Vice was the Frenchman who was in the spotlight. He was drafted in the first round by the New York Knicks, and everybody thought, okay, he's going to be a European star in the NBA. Now, Two decades later, he's standing on the court watching Wembenyama get ready to say goodbye to France and head to the United States and the NBA the way he was supposed to. But Vice's story didn't go the way anybody expected. And so as Vice looks at Wembenyama as he watches the game that night, he told me he sees Wembenyama's arc in a really interesting way. He sees Wembenyama looking at the future and he says, you know, his whole life is in front of him. And after everything that's happened with me, I sometimes think maybe my whole life is in front of me too. No matter what he achieves in his life, no matter where he goes, Frederick Weiss will forever be linked with one Olympic moment that took place 23 years ago. Vince Carter at the Olympics, the rip, and then over Frederick Weiss. We see it once more, Weiss picked by the Knicks to do more than stand there and watch Carter do that. That image, Vince Carter literally jumping over Weiss, often considered the best dunk ever, cemented what many had already come to believe about the French big man. They believed that Vice, who'd been a Knicks first-round pick, was soft, overwhelmed, and ill-equipped for the NBA. And as the years passed and Vice remained absent from the league, 
a narrative filled the vacuum, that of a man who'd been mentally broken by the game, hiding away in some basketball backwater. But as the sport celebrates the arrival on the scene of another French big man, Victor Wembenyama, who's now officially the number one overall pick in the draft, we'll explore a more complicated story about his compatriot, his predecessor. We'll see how that widely accepted narrative around Frederick Weiss never really reflected the whole truth, and how after so many years and a great deal of pain, basketball might in fact prove to be his salvation. I'm Jeremy Schaap. It's Friday, June 23rd. This is ESPN Daily. So Sam, this isn't the first time you've reported on, been around Frederick Weiss. Can you tell us a little bit about your history with Frederick Weiss? Yeah, sure, uh, Jeremy. You're right. I mean, in 2015, I was living in Paris. I was working for the New York Times. And the Knicks had drafted Kristaps Porzingis. And mm. there was a sort of negative reaction from a lot of the fans. They didn't really know Porzingis. He was this European player. A lot of the fans weren't very familiar with him. And in the aftermath of that draft... I sort of was thinking about the last time that something similar had happened with the Knicks. And as somebody who grew up in New York, I remembered Frederick Weiss in 1999. And I remembered how everybody, at least everybody that I knew that liked the Knicks, was sort of like, wait, who is this guy? And, and why didn't we just draft Ron Artest, who's from Queens and everybody knows? And so I was kind of like, all right, well, the Knicks just drafted Porzingis. It's 2015. It's been, you know, uh, 16 years since Frederick Weiss. I wonder what he's doing and like what's going on with him. And so I went uh, to Limoges and I tracked down where Frederick Weiss was living at that time. And it was like a three hour train ride from where I was living. And so I went down and visited him and spent a day with him and found out what was going on in his life, what he'd been doing in the 16 years since the Knicks drafted him. When you find him down there, what kind of state of mind was he in? Yeah, it was it was interesting, Jeremy. You know, I think that I brought to that story and to that interview an expectation that Frederick Weiss was going to be kind of a negative person, an angry person. Mm. And I think that was largely rooted in the idea that, like, this is a guy who was a bust or not even really a bust, kind of a never was in the NBA. He never played for the Knicks. He never made it over from Europe. He stayed in 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 France and then played also in Spain and in Greece. And, and was sort of this like huge letdown. And I think he was very aware of that narrative around him. And then obviously, of course, he was also the one on the receiving end of Vince Carter's Dunk de la Mort in the Olympics in 2000. And so, you know, these two things, he went from this like first round draft pick, you know, maybe the best big man in Europe to sort of a punchline. And I just sort of assumed that, you know, 15, 16 years later, he'd be pretty bitter about that. And the interesting thing was I I found him in Limoges. He owned a tobacco store, a tobacco, like a convenience store and a bar. Right. And he was pretty negative and he was pretty moody and he was pretty sullen. But the interesting thing was it had very little to do with either the Knicks or Vince Carter. So with Vice, 
you know, there are these layers there, but but it all starts with in terms of his role, his place in American basketball folklore, getting drafted by the Knicks. With the 15th pick in the 1999 NBA draft, the New York Knicks select Frederick Weiss from Limoges, France. Frederick Weiss, as you see, is 7'2 and 240. He has been somewhat of a mystery man in this draft. Not that he has talent or doesn't have talent. Well, what was that experience like for him? You know, you consider the way that Vembanyama experienced the draft, right? I mean, you know, for the lottery, there was a huge party and he stayed up in the middle of the night and, you know, uh, Brian Windhorst was over there interviewing him seconds after the lottery was finished. (laughs) And, you know, for the draft, he's in New York and he's, you know, seeing it happen right in front of him. Vice, I mean, on July 1st, 1999, he gets a phone call in the middle of the night in a Paris hotel room because he's with the French national team preparing for a game. There was no like you know, hype around it. He didn't go to the United States for the draft. He, he was literally preparing to play an international game. And his agent calls him and says, Fred, you got everything you wanted. And Vice is, is ecstatic. He calls his dad. He's, you know, screaming into the phone. He assumes that everybody in the world is as excited as he is. It wasn't until weeks later when he actually comes to New York and who takes part in this very, you know, brief training camp with the Knicks Summer League team that he finds out actually most people were pretty upset. They all wanted to run our test. Everybody knew our test from St. John's. Mm. And, you know, there were a lot of people even within the organization, including the Knicks coach, Jeff Van Gundy, who weren't necessarily super excited that Vice, <laughs> this largely unknown French guy who, you know, was big and hadn't necessarily played in a league that had the speed of the NBA was now their first round draft choice. So here he is. He's coming to New York. Seems like a great situation for a Frenchman, an organization that's experienced a lot of success. What actually happened? Yeah, Jeremy, I mean, it was it was a time when the Knicks had high standards. I mean, and the fans had high standards for the Knicks. And so I think there was this expectation that Vice was going to come in and, you know, perform the way a first round draft pick would. But very quickly, Vice found out that several people with the Knicks, including Van Gundy, as I mentioned, weren't necessarily as enamored with him as he might have expected. The interesting thing that Van Gundy said to me back then, and I think was sort of the feeling that you would get from most Knicks officials, was that very quickly it became clear that Vice, in their opinion, didn't actually want to come and play in the United States, that he wasn't necessarily as motivated to come and succeed in the NBA as they would have expected from somebody who was drafted in the first round. Vice says the opposite. No, I wanted to come. I wanted to you know, play one more year in France and then come and sign and and play in the NBA. The Knicks say he didn't want to come. And there's a lot of sort of he said, he said Mm. about what happened over the next two or three years when, you know, as you may remember, Jeremy, it was sort of like a cottage industry around, hey, where's Frederick Weiss at the start of every NBA season? It was it was confusing because, you know, the uh, assumption on the part of people in the media and fans, and basically everybody <laughs> was that, hey, you got drafted by the Knicks. They're giving you this great opportunity to come to the NBA, to prove yourself, to be a star in by far the world's greatest league. And 
it was like, where's Waldo? Yeah, um, exactly. It, exactly. It, it, it was very bizarre. And then, of course, you know, you write about this narrative, which, you know, was, I think, the prevalent narrative at the time that Vice was intimidated and that Vice didn't want to come to the U.S. and play in the NBA. And part of it has to do with an experience he had in the 2000 Olympics. Yeah, exactly right. So you have this this one element, right, where bottom line is he's not in America despite being drafted. And then in 2000 at the Olympics, Fred is there. He's playing for the French team. They're, they're a good team. They're competing for a medal. But in one of their games, they're playing against the United States. And Vince Carter takes the ball and delivers what the French media dubbed le dunk de la mort, the dunk of death. <laughs> They have really a talent for understatement, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> so it's very typical, very typical. Vince Carter actually leaping completely over seven foot two French center Frederick Weiss, or as the New York Post has dubbed the Knicks 1999 first round pick, the French pastry. But I mean, Jeremy, this dunk, like, you know, you watch it on YouTube. I watched it, you know, a, a couple of months ago before I went to see Fred and I was like, man, this dunk, is, it holds up. Do you know what I mean? It holds up. It is sick. Yeah, I mean, we, we can't do it justice with mere words, but it looks like Carter is actually hurtling all seven foot one or whatever <laughs> of Frederick Weiss. Like, like he clears the top of his head. Yes. And at the same time knocks him backward on his way to this monstrous, death-defying, gravity-defying uh, all-time highlight. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's a remarkable piece of athleticism. Jason Kidd called it the greatest play in basketball I've ever seen. Vice said, everybody will now know my face, or my number at least. It's going to be on a poster for sure. I mean, Vice, if you're, I don't know how small a seven-foot-two man can look, but mm. he looked small. I mean, he yeah. looked tiny in that. You know, it's like his, his hands are sort of down, you know, like, and his shoulders are hunched and... I guess maybe he's trying to take a charge. I don't I don't really know what what was going on there, but he looks I mean like an air traffic controller as the plane, you know, soars overhead. Like it is it is really ridiculous and it's an incredible dunk. It's crazy. One of the elements that makes it so memorable is that Vice is there. There's a victim in this. It's it's humiliating for him. Obviously, the aftermath of that, it sort of adds to this narrative that Vice is this like victim, this, mm. you know, intimidated, scared player. And despite the fact that France wins the silver medal, this, this moment, this humiliating moment is what history remembers about Frederick Vice and the 2000 Olympics. After the break, the challenges of a life in basketball give way to the challenges of life. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. 
With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home some huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So, Sam, we've established that at the time of the 2000 Olympics, you know, Le Dunc de la Mort, uh, Frederick Weiss is not held in very high esteem by basketball fans, especially in North America. But you speak to him a long time after that, 2015, eight years ago. At that point, how did he look back on that part of his life? There was this assumption that, oh, well, clearly he's depressed. The truth is, three years after the Knicks draft him and two years after Vince Carter, he was actually as happy as he'd ever been, he told me. Mm. You know, he's playing in Malaga. He's living in Spain, beautiful part of Spain. His wife, Celia, had just given birth to a son. And the truth is, Jeremy, like as much as we might have assumed or people would have assumed that the NBA was his dream, and I'm sure he was excited about the possibility of playing in the NBA, he had actually dreamed about being a dad way more. He was more excited about hey, look, my life is finally happening the way I wanted it. I've, I've got a, a good job. I'm, I'm playing in Spain. I'm living in a great part of Spain. And I'm about to be a dad. His, his son is born. And you'll like this, uh, Jeremy. So Vice has an Italian grandmother. And when he grew up, he loved Alonzo Mourning. That was like one of his sort of, you know, um, his, his legendary players that he rooted for. Right. And so he has this son. And he and Celia named the boy Enzo. And he couldn't be more excited about getting to raise Enzo and sort of his life ahead. I think the NBA, Vince Carter, that was largely in the rearview mirror for him at that time. So here he is. He's 24 years old. He's living in a great place. He's in love. He's just married. He's become a father, which is his bigger dream, believe it or not, than playing in the NBA. But that happiness and that peace of mind doesn't last. No, that's that's right. And and again, it had nothing to do with basketball. You know, Vice told me that his relationship with his own dad, Jean-Claude was his name, was tricky. You know, I mean, it was a relationship where Jean-Claude was, you know, a, a loving father, took care of him, took care of his family, but wasn't necessarily effusive, wasn't necessarily outwardly doting on Fred. I think that that led Fred to want to have a family as soon as he could, to do it differently. And so he was really excited about Enzo and raising his son and teaching him basketball. So then in 2004, Vice joins Bilbao and Basque Country in northern Spain, and he and Celia enroll Enzo in school there. And one day they get a call from Enzo's teacher, and the teacher says that she's concerned about Enzo's development. Enzo goes for some tests, they see some doctors, and in a small office, one morning, Vice and Celia sit there with this specialist. The doctor says to Vice and Celia, your son has severe autism. This is a handicap. The doctor was, was merciless almost, Vice says. He was so blunt. He says, 
Enzo is never going to have children and you will never have grandchildren. And in that moment, Vice's entire world collapsed. I want to say, like, obviously, I'm not saying, I know we're not saying that if you have an autistic child, that means that your life is over. This is just the way that Vice reacted. And I think, like I was saying before, a lot of it was wrapped up in what he was imagining in terms of a difference from his own relationship with his dad and sort of the recognition that that was never going to happen. And he didn't deal with it well. I mean, he was crushed. He and Celia barely spoke to each other as they left the office. You know, Vice continues to practice, to, to, to do his job, to play with Bill Bow, but he's in a haze. As the days, the weeks, the months go by, everything is a disappointment for him, you know? As opposed to figuring out in that moment what he could do with his son, he focused on all the things he couldn't do. You know, he couldn't do a puzzle with him. He couldn't have a conversation with him. As, as Enzo begins to play and run, Vice wants to play basketball with him. But whenever he gives Enzo the ball and they try to go out onto the court, Enzo just drops the ball and runs around the court, up and back, up and back, as Vice stands there and watches. And he wasn't able to do the things that he had imagined, and he wasn't able to process how to do the things that he could. He starts drinking. He and Celia fight all the time. Vice stays out until four or five o'clock in the morning, doesn't want to be at home. So he's dealing with all of this emotion. He can't talk to his wife. He can't talk to his teammates. He's not even interested really in playing basketball. He wonders if there is a connection between depression, which he knows that he is in the midst of, and autism. Maybe it's possible that I somehow did this. I'm to blame. He just takes it all in. And it builds and it builds and it builds. And it leads him to an incredibly dark place. What happens? So in January of 2008, Fred is leaving Spain and he's driving back to France. At this point, he and Celia have separated. Celia's moved back to France with Enzo. And so on this day in January of 2008, he wakes up and he sets off on a drive from Spain back to France. Part of the way into the drive near Biarritz, he pulls over at a rest area and he takes out a box of sleeping pills and he takes every single one. He told me when we talked, he said, I just wanted to stop it all. He, it, it, it had all built up to this point where he, he just wanted to die. He didn't want to deal with his own life anymore. So he takes the entire box of sleeping pills and he thinks that's going to be it. 10 hours later, he wakes up. He looks around, he's confused, he's in his car. He doesn't know what happened. I mean, he, he doesn't understand why he is where he is. He looks over, he sees the box of sleeping pills on the floor of the car and he's relieved. He's relieved that he didn't succeed. He calls Celia, who was expecting him, you know, like hours earlier and has been freaking out about where he is. They both cry on the phone. He tells her what happened. 
he goes, uh, he waits there. Celia sends a friend of theirs to pick him up in Biarritz and bring him back to their house in France. And at that point, he reconciles with Celia. He tries to sort of get a hold of his life. He tries to, to embrace, you know, the positive things in his life. He stops drinking. He plays a couple more years, finishes off his career, buys this convenience store in Limoges where they're going to raise their, their son. And as he said to me, I, I tried to have a normal life at that point. I knew that it wasn't going to be the way that I imagined, but I tried to have a normal life. And Jeremy, as you know, things like this are never as simple as we would want them to be. And the reality was as much of a normal life as he wanted in that moment, he still had a lot of unresolved emotional issues. And those, those issues continued to resurface. Even when I saw him in 2015, he was still pretty moody. He was still pretty sullen. He still would occasionally yell at customers in his store for no reason, just getting into an argument, Celia told me. There were days when she would come in and still find him staring at the ceiling of the bedroom, not wanting to get out of bed. He never went and saw a therapist. He never really tried to deal with the deep-seated emotions that he had. And, and again, just to be clear, you know, we think about vice and depression and this narrative of like, oh, that he was depressed because he couldn't play in the NBA. He was depressed because Vince Carter dunked on him. I'm telling you, Jeremy, when I was sitting there talking to him in 2015, and again, when I was talking to him uh, last month, neither of those things came up when he talked about this sort of darkest time in his life. Neither of those things, neither the Knicks nor Vince Carter, were a part of what led him to this place. Meaningless. Meaningless compared to what's going on in his personal life. Yeah. When he pulled over at that rest stop, did he think about the Knicks? Did he think about the NBA? Maybe, but only in the context of just another thing in my life that didn't work out the way I wanted. Coming up, Fred Weiss's surprising path back from the brink. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. So, Sam, it has been eight years since you wrote that story for the New York Times about Frederick Weiss. And now, 
know, we're talking about another French big man. We're talking about Victor Wembenyama, the number one overall pick in the draft, going to the Spurs. So the time seems right to go back, see Frederick Weiss again. When you see him this time, when you go to Paris, what did you find? There is no doubt uh, it was a different Frederick Weiss that I found this time. He has found, I think, a measure of peace. I think a lot of it has to do with the way that he has sort of calibrated the things in his life that matter. And one of those things is basketball. So when I saw him in 2015, it was pretty clear to me that at that time, he wasn't interested necessarily in revisiting his basketball career or even basketball in general. And I think a large part of it was because anytime he would think about playing basketball or watching basketball or talking about basketball, it would inevitably force him to look back on a dark time in his life. Again, not necessarily because of what was going on on the court, but because of what had happened in the rest of his life. And so what I think was really interesting about what I found now with Vice is that he's found a way to enjoy the things about basketball that he always loved, and he's doing that through commentary. How do you go from, you know, running your convenience store to now being, you know, on national TV, and I'm assuming continent-wide TV in Europe, as Walt Frazier, Reggie Miller, Charles Barkley, however you want to put it. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting thing because in 2015, he was doing very little, if anything, related to basketball. But in 2016, a year after I saw him, he was offered the chance to do a color commentary on a radio broadcast of a random Spanish league basketball game. And it was just a, a one-off, like, hey, we need someone to fill in. And Fred, hey, you played in the Spanish league. Could you help us out? And he was very nervous, but he did it. And he said that he had a lot more fun than he had expected. And I think the main reason was he didn't have to talk about himself. Unlike a lot of other former athletes who get into color commentary, he wasn't interested in nostalgia. He didn't talk about how it was back in the day. He simply focused on the game in front of him. And I think he realized after that experience, okay, if I am able to, to keep that focus, if I'm able to not dip back into the past, I actually really do like basketball and it does make me happy. And so he did another game and another game. And then it, that led to a contract with L'Equipe TV. And then that led to a contract with RMC, the French radio station. And now he works for BN Sports. And I got to tell you, Jeremy, I talked to him in 2015 and his voice was exactly the way that you would imagine, you know, sort of sullen, mm. dark, quiet. His voice now, particularly when he's talking about basketball, it is, it is, it is animated. It's, it's intense. If you listen to the clips of him calling basketball and there's some great clips of, you know, him going nuts when, you know, Nicholas Batum has this incredible block. 
there's joy in his voice. And I had never heard that before. Being able to figure out a way to love basketball again was a, a gateway in some ways to helping him figure out how to love all of the important things in his life. They all went together. So, mm. you know, basketball was a big part of his life. He sort of went away from it because it was this negative thing, this negative space. And now he's found a way to appreciate the things about it that he loves. Maybe that sounds simple to you and to me, but that's a beautiful reality mm. for a guy who has experienced what he has experienced and who has this mental connection to this incredibly dark time with his earlier playing career. And it's fascinating too, Sam, as you write in your story. I mean, here we are 23 years later after, say it for me one more time with your, your wonderful accent. Le Donc de la Mort. Thank you. How does Vice, how does he now feel about the dunk and, and what it means to his story for so many? Yeah, you know, I think that that's a really important component. Again, not because it was the linchpin of the spiral that Vice experienced, but because it's a part of it. Over the years, Vice has talked a lot about the dunk. I mean, he's he's never been, you know, one of those guys who would be closed off to it. He's he's been honest about it. He's he said things like, you know, I had my eyes closed mm. when Carter was flying <laughs> over him. He's, you know, he's he's been really gracious. He said, you know, oh look, I, I learned people can fly. He's been glib about it at times. He said things like, well, you know, it was just two points. He he's done all of those things. He's talked about it. And I think that internally he recognizes that it's a piece of history. It's never going away. And he understands that. I mean, he's a thoughtful guy. One of the interesting things that he said when we talked about it this most recent time that I saw him was it actually makes him concerned for Wembenyama and what Wembenyama might experience in the NBA because of exactly what you just said. You know, it is possible for an entire career that may be, you know, terrific to be defined by a singular moment that wasn't terrific. And he said, like, look, I worry about Victor because look what happened to me. You know, this is a guy who won a French League title, won Defensive Player of the Year awards, won a silver medal for his national team in the Olympics. And the only thing anybody remembers about him is this dunk that he was on the receiving end of. And so I think he has made peace with that. He has made peace that that is the way that other people are going to remember him. When he talks about his playing career, he's proud of that Olympics. Having that silver medal, winning that silver medal was something that he was really happy about and that he felt like was a significant accomplishment. But Jeremy, it's really difficult to think one way about something when the entire world is telling you to think about it in a different way. And so I think when he looks back on that dunk and that entire experience, he just looks at it as this thing that transformed something good into something else. And... You know, you write about the way that he finds a measure of peace, serenity, peace of mind now about the dunk. It, it also reflects, mirrors the way that he's, as he's gotten older, come to terms with other things. Yeah, no doubt. I think that, and, and this is why I think it's important to understand the way that he sees the dunk, because in a lot of ways, it is emblematic of the way that he approached 
a lot of the other issues in his life that had led to his depression. You know, there were a lot of questions that he asked himself all the time. Some of them were, were about the dunk. Like, what if he just stepped out of the way as Vince Carter was coming towards him? What if he aggressively knocked Carter out of the air? You know, what if another team besides the Knicks had drafted him? And, and then that leads into these other questions. What if Enzo wasn't autistic? All of these questions weighed on him. And I think that at some point as he got older, particularly as he was able to recognize, okay, maybe I can love basketball again. Maybe I can find a way to think about this thing in my life in a different way. It helped him realize that those questions, the answers didn't matter. And, you know, he said to me when I saw him this last time, I just stopped thinking about the past so much because I realized that it does nothing. Easier said than done. Well, totally, totally. But I think that in some ways, basketball helped him to realize, look, I did it with this thing. Maybe I can do it with these other things. And I think most importantly, Jeremy, he found a measure of peace in how he was able to have a relationship with his son. He told me that he stopped wishing every single day that he could play basketball with his son the way the other dads did. And he found ways to connect with Enzo that were different than he had imagined. He, you know, they go walking together in the forest near Vice's house. They have a lot of animals at Vice's house because Enzo loves animals. They have 14 chickens and cats and dogs and they have a swimming pool and Enzo has always loved the water and so they swim together. At night sometimes, Vice will be at a basketball game commentating, the TV will be on, and Enzo will sort of perk up and say to Celia, hey, that's Papa Fred, when he hears Vice's voice on TV. You know, at one point, Fred said to me, like, he's my beautiful boy, and Enzo's 21 now. He's my beautiful boy. Sometimes when we wrestle, he's so big, it's hard to take him down. And he had this grin on his face, Jeremy, look, you know, I'm a dad, you're a dad. We know what that grin looks like. And I had never seen that from Fred before, but I saw it this time. And Frederick Weiss is now 45, and he is experiencing fatherhood, new fatherhood again. Yeah, that Jeremy, that was the thing that surprised me the most. Literally, the first thing he told me when I saw him, he got off the train at Montparnasse train station in Paris, and he said, you know, I'm a dad again. And he was so happy. And I said, well, what happened? And he said, you know, he and Celia separated in 2016, about a year after I'd seen him. And they, they still are very close. They, they live near each other. They talk every day. They're raising Enzo together. But he met another woman. He met another woman. Her name is Fanny. She has no interest in basketball, literally had never heard of the Dunk de la Mort before Fred showed her it on YouTube, had no idea about it. And they fell in love. And she wanted to have a child. And he is going through this whole process again. And he's loving it. I mean, he showed me pictures. You know, her name is Anna. The daughter's name is Anna. And I think to see him recognize that he loves Enzo for what Enzo is. And he loves Anna for what Anna is. And that they are going to have a relationship, he hopes, as Anna gets older. And that Anna will be there someday to help take care of Enzo when mm. Fred is gone. Like there was a real sort of full circle component to it that 
right. really was just warm and wonderful. And, and Jeremy, like you've told a lot of stories in your career, and I'm sure you have felt this too. You know, as journalists, we capture moments in time with people and places. Mm -hmm. And very rarely do we go back and sort of find out what happens. And if we do, a lot of times it's not a happy ending. But this is one of the very few times in my career where I went somewhere, I told a story about somebody who is experiencing something really dark and difficult. And then I got to see that they had some measure of happiness in the end years later. And for me personally, as a journalist, it was a really rewarding thing. I remember calling my wife and she saying, her saying to me, how's Fred? And I said, I, I think Fred's pretty happy <laughs> and, you know, feeling really good about being able to say that. You know, is, is this the future for Frederick Weiss? Is he happy forever? I think he knows that it's going to take work. And I think, Jeremy, you know, the way that you know that he understands that is he was talking to mm -hmm. me about this book he wrote, okay? Like, uh, during the pandemic, he, he wrote a memoir with a, a local journalist that he's friends with. And, you know, he, he gave it to me. He, I read it. He, uh, you know, talks a lot about a lot of the things that we just talked about in this podcast. And the thing that struck me is the title of the book. And the title of the book is Jusque la Sava, Jusque la Sava. He calls the story of his life Jusque la Sava. And that means in English, so far, so good. <laughs> it's better than... Uh... Le Duc de la Mort. <laughs> For sure. Sam Borden, thank you so much for sharing this story. Thank you, Jeremy. One more note before we close. If you or someone you know is having suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by dialing 988. That's it. Just dial 988. I'm Jeremy Schapp. This has been ESPN Daily. Our show is produced by Bradford Craig, Alexander Hyacinth, Mike Johns, Heather Lombardo, Ryan Nantel, Mike Philbrick, Andre Soto, Andy Tennant, and Aaron Vale. Special thanks this week to Deontay Epps and Jackson Agello. We'll talk to you Monday.